This evening's exhortation will be given to us by Brother Zach Best, and he has entitled this, The Importance of Prophecy, and asks that we read in preparation from Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 and verses 27 through 38. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariots to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And so it's my pleasure to call upon Brother Zach Vest to exhort us on the subject of the importance of prophecy. Bring the greetings and love of the Dallas Ecclesia. I'd like to thank the Ecclesias for putting this on. It's a great benefit um, to all of us, but especially those of us who come from rather smaller Ecclesias, to be in such a large group of brothers and sisters is greatly appreciated. So thank you for your efforts. Um, Our topic this evening is going to be prophecy. And this has been a topic our Ecclesia has been spending more time on thanks to the efforts and teachings of some of our older brethren who have stressed the importance. And this evening we plan to address several areas. Namely, first of all, what is the value of prophecy beyond being an academic exercise? I'd like to address, is prophecy important to us now on a personal level? And whether or not we individually give enough emphasis to prophecy in our daily studies. We'd also like to take a little bit of time to look at why in this day and age, in our society, 
the study of prophecy is especially an important and a beneficial tool for us remaining strangers and pilgrims. And then finally, we'd like to come back and look at why and how we can glean lessons about prophecy from an Ethiopian eunuch and a disciple of Christ in a chariot 2,000 years ago. And as we go through, we're going to take a look at examples. I personally learned better from examples, and so that's going to be our focus this morning, or this evening. Brother Bill, you're rubbing off. So first, why is prophecy important outside of being an academic exercise of looking at times and dates and numbers? Well, let's flip over to Isaiah. Because Isaiah records one of the elements of prophecy and the importance of prophecy is being a witness of the omnipotence and omniscience of God. Isaiah 41. And we'll begin reading at verse 21. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the King of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God. Yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, you are of nothing, and your work of naught, an abomination, is he that chooses you. So here God is challenging the idols and the gods of the world to offer prophecy, to declare things to come, that we may know that they are gods. Let's flip over to chapter 42. Look down at verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Flip over one more chapter to chapter 43, and go down to verse 9. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses, that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, It is truth. You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. So here, there's special importance given to the children of Abraham as witnesses to God's existence. There's special importance in the messages concerning the future of the nation of Israel. And one more in Isaiah over in chapter 46. Isaiah 46, beginning verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So God's ability to share prophecy in the prophetic word is a declaration that he is a true and living God. Next, flip over to Second Peter. 
Second Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. And there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So here Peter's describing the events that occurred on the Mount of Transfiguration. And that he was an eyewitness is a reason first century believers knew that they were not followers of cunningly devised fables. But he continues on in verse 19. We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but by holy men of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we know that we have not followed fables because the first-hand account of scripture, and secondly, because of the more sure word of prophecy. And finally, let's flip over to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, begin verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, that the glory should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The prophecy deals with the plan of salvation that God has in store for the earth. So how could we not be interested in reading and studying about prophecy? How could we not be like the prophets of old that inquired and searched diligently, and even the angels that desire to look into these things? So kind of in summary, prophecy allows us, 19,000 years after the last book of the Bible was written, 19,000 years after the last people who had the gift of the Holy Spirit walked the earth, to know that we have proof that the words contained in Scripture are not fables, but the true words of a living, all-powerful, all-knowing God, a God who has revealed his plan and purpose to man through his divinely appointed prophets, an interest in that plan and purpose has drawn servants of God throughout time to study and take an active interest in the prophetic word. Now these are all passages we're familiar with. We all share belief in an understanding that prophecy is important. But the next question is, is it important to us personally? So let's take a hypothetical situation. Suppose I walked out into the audience and took your Bible right now and ripped out all the Old Testament prophets. Took out pages out of Psalms, out of the Law of Moses, took out the Alphabet Prophecy, um, books and chapters in Acts, Corinthians, Thessalonians, the book of Revelation, and letters of Peter, John, Jude. There'd be pages missing from just about every book of the Bible. And I just took those pages and held them 
and you could never again read them. You knew they existed, but you could never read them again. How would you respond? Would you feel outrage? Would you feel sadness? Or would you be a little more complacent? Would you necessarily notice that they were missing from your Bible? Would it have an impact on your normal Bible study habits? Would our reaction be, well, you know, when I, I get to those portions in my daily reading, I kind of skim through, I'm not quite sure what's going on in lots of those passages in Isaiah. In Revelation, kind of, some of those symbols I'm not quite sure about. So I go through it pretty quick. Or, even more, is it kind of, I try to focus on the historical book, the parables, that's kind of more my focus. Well, as we think about our own reaction, we have the example of another brother's reaction to a very similar situation. Let's flip over to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, beginning at verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor on earth, nor under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So John knows that this book or this scroll contains the words of God. It holds the prophecy about the things that must shortly come to pass and that are going to lead and explain the events up to the return of Christ. Yet, he has initially denied that information. That John had his heart wrenching. Can we imagine weeping if we were told we could not study prophecy? If we were told that we could not have access to the book of Revelation? That's quite a strong reaction. But that is the vigor and the passion that we should have for, of course, reading all of God's word in general, but especially for prophecy, which, as we addressed before, confirms our hopes. It confirms to us that God's plan and purpose will be accomplished, that Christ will return that we have a hope of being amongst the multitude that's talked about in Revelation 5, farther down the chapter, where it says that the symbolic beasts and elders will fall down before the Lamb and will sing, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. If we do not strive to study and understand, we are accepting, or at least indifferent, to whether or not the prophetic word has been revealed to us, whether or not the seals of the scroll have been removed. Have these books, these prophetic words, been taken from us already due to our own disinterest? Hopefully not, but it's a question we must all ask ourselves. The next question I'd like to look at this evening is, whether or not we put enough emphasis on prophecy in our daily studies. 
For many, the answer will be yes. But if the answer is no, the question is, why not? Well, there are many potential reasons. And I, I personally used to have quite a long list myself until several brothers uh, eventually kind of beat into me the importance of it, which was good, great, very grateful for. For some, prophecy is intimidating. Others have a lack of exposure to the basics of prophecy. Others may lack an interest in history in general. Or some may not see the importance of it. The list of answers could go on and on. But we'd like to spend a little bit of time this evening on one reason, and that is the belief that it, or a lack of confidence that the meaning can be comprehended, that it is just too hard to accurately understand the prophetic word. So anyone alive during the late 80s and during the 90s knows that there were lots of expectations at that time. Um, there were uses of the prophecies concerning Cyrus to see 1985 is important, the 40-year generation from 47-48 to take us to the late 80s, the man in the river prophecy of Daniel to bring us to the early 90s, Usher's date from the beginning of creation took you to the late 90s, and there were various others. And none of those prophecies necessarily came to pass. So if these prophecies that seem straightforward were misinterpreted, why should I try? Well, so many older brothers and sisters that knew so much more than me, that had so much more experience than I did, didn't come up with the correct answer. How could I possibly grasp the meaning? Well, this reasoning on the surface has the appearance of humility, but in actuality, in this mindset, prophecy is written off with a sweep of kind of a defeatist attitude that it can never be comprehended. Should the fact that these expectations did not come to pass discourage us? Or should it make us believe that their meaning is not comprehensible? Or should it encourage us and force us to continue to study to comprehend? Now, this is not the only time in history that the servants of God felt that certain prophecies were going to come to pass at a certain time period, and then they did not proceed as expected. So we're going to look at a couple of those examples and see and wonder how they reacted. Let's look first over at Luke 24. Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. And they walked together of all these things, and talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, what manner of communications are these that you have had one to another as you walk and are sad? And the one said, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are, come, which are come to pass in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that he had been 
he which would have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since those things were done. Let's continue down in verse 25. Then he, Christ, said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? And the beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So these men in the way, like the rest of Christ's disciples, had expected that Christ at his first coming was going to be the Lion of the tribe of Judah, that he was going to come and throw off the Roman Empire, the Roman, the Roman yoke, and would reestablish the kingdom of Israel at that time. But that was not the case. So when those expectations did not come about, how did the first century disciples respond? Well, some potentially fell away, some were discouraged, but many others continued their walk, rejuvenated and strengthened with a better understanding of God's plan and purpose. Let's look at another example over in 1 Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall raise first then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So in this passage, Paul says, some of us and we which are alive. Paul includes himself in the group that hopes to be alive at Christ's return. So what happened to the Thessalonians when Paul passed away? Did they sit around and say, Paul said Christ was going, he was going to be alive when Christ returned. He was going to be a part of that group. They had to decide, like Christ's disciples, at his death, whether or not they were going to become discouraged that Christ had not returned or become rejuvenated to study the Word of God. Also, our time period isn't the first time uh, the Brotherhood has faced with this issue either. Um, and I think... Most people are familiar with this, but in Elphus Israel, Dr. Thomas on page 428, um, I guess of this recent publication version, he says, It will be seen that the 2,400 years terminated a few years later than the period of the 1,290 years, and that the time of the end and the 1335 come to coalesce about 1868, or rather, the one ends and the other begins at the epoch of 1860 to 1868. So Dr. Thomas, he said all these prophetic dates would end in that time period, there would be another 40 years, and that Christ and the second exodus of Israel would occur about 1908, and then would begin the thousand-year millennial reign. So when 1908 came and went and these events that Dr. Thomas wrote in Elpis Israel didn't come to pass, 
did everyone just fall apart and look for a new explanation of how things went together? Well, they continued to look. They continued to search. The main message is that although prophecies have been misapplied in the past, that does not mean the field should be neglected as a whole, nor should we be shy about searching for answers, nor should we throw away the proven foundations of our prophetic understandings that have led to so many correct understandings of the prophetic word. There's one more point we'd like to look at, and that is why is it important to continue talking about prophecy and the plan of God, especially in our day and age? Well, what are these days compared to in Scripture? On Luke 17, Christ says, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. The same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So both Noah and Lot were righteous men living in an evil age that was subjected to the divine judgment of God. And they are examples for us. Noah was a man who walked with God but lived in a time when the wickedness of the earth was great and every imagination of man's heart was evil continually. And that world perished with water. Lot was a man whose soul was vexed day to day with the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah's unlawful deeds. And the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire, and he overthrew those cities. So Noah and Lot are both examples for us in overcoming the wicked world that continually surrounds us. Now, although they had many similarities in their situation, were they completely the same? Well, how did they live until their respective worlds were destroyed? Let's flip over to Second Peter 2. Second Peter 2, beginning in verse 5. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ash, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those of us that should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. So how did Noah spend his time until the flood? Well, we know he built an ark, but it also says he was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was convicted concerning the prophetic message that God was going to destroy the world with water that that world was to come to an end. And that conviction and that belief led him first to be willing to share his faith, his understanding of the prophetic word about the coming flood. Noah spent his time prior to the flood preaching to the world and warning them of that coming judgment. And second, because of his belief, he was willing to be different, to be separate in order to serve God. 
is uh, put you apart from your neighbors if you're willing to build a huge boat in your backyard. So what was the result? Noah entered the ark with his family, with his three sons with his, and their three wives, and his house was saved as God had promised him it would be. From this we see that Noah's conviction was not only important to him to motivate him in his walk, but it influenced those around him, specifically his family, so that they were also saved. Now to me, if Noah's sons were old enough to be married, they were probably also old enough to assert their independence. But instead, they were willing to enter the ark. They believed and followed their righteous father, despite any scorns and scoffing of their neighbors and fellow family members. Now, what about Lot? How did Lot spend his days up until the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, Peter says his soul was vexed. Now, is vexed an inward feeling, or is it something that is manifested? Well, he was vexed, but did he share why he was vexed? Well, the scripture doesn't record. But unlike Noah, who was building an ark, Lot continually made choices that brought him closer and closer to the city. He first pitched his tent towards the city, and then by the time the angels come, they find Lot living in the city, sitting in the gate. Now, who was saved with Lot? Only his two daughters. He lost at least his wife, two of his daughters, and their husband, who knows how many other children, grandchildren, and servants. And if you take the view that Abraham's numbering and his bargaining with God was trying to save Lot and his household, that is quite a number of people that Lot would have lost. Now, Lot was righteous, and he was saved through God's mercy, but he lost a lot through his choices. Lot's family, except for those he had direct control over, did not have the same motivation as Noah's family. They were not willing to follow the example of their righteous, God-fearing father. Now, I'm not saying that Noah's conviction concerning the prophetic word was the only component that made him and his family different from Lot. There are obviously multiple factors. However, Noah's convictions had a positive impact on his family's service to God. So in comparing these two examples, there is a benefit in continuing to share the gospel and to teach prophecy. It helps us motivate ourselves to remain separate and to continue our service, as did Lot, as did Noah, excuse me. At the same time, it provides a strong example for the generation that follow to find strength in the similar sure foundations of the truth. Prophecy is therefore an invaluable tool as we strive to be like Lot and Noah in this dark world, and as we hope that the subsequent generations will be like Noah's children and enter in the Ark of Salvation. Now, as we look at Noah as a teacher and his sons as an example of those who benefit from his message, we can turn back to our opening reading this morning, this evening. Again, we'll ask, why does a eunuch and Philip sitting in a chariot 2,000 years ago have impact on how we treat prophecy now? Well, what was the eunuch doing? He was reading from the book of Isaiah, and he was trying to understand a prophecy concerning Christ. We have a student 
of the Word, who is reading and studying with a desire to understand, who has yet to enter into the waters of baptism. And Philip comes as the instructor. And the two sit in the chariot, and they talk about how the prophecies of Isaiah apply to the Messiah, and how that Messiah was Jesus of Nazareth. Now there's an example for everyone in this account. There's a lesson for those not yet baptized, and the eunuch who exemplifies the mindset that is needed. The need to strive with personal study to understand the Word of God, but recognize at the same time that we need instructors. If we strive to understand without guidance, we can find ourselves quickly frustrated, quickly coming to the belief that despite the words of Peter, prophecy is open to personal interpretation. Or, worse yet, we can become overly confident in our abilities and establish a false path that leads us open to having our faith easily shaken. As one begins to study prophecy, then what should one look for an instructor? Should we be looking for someone to stand up from this lecture and spoon feed us and just give us the answers and tell us all everything and outlay revelation word for word? Well, and <clears throat> to be honest, not too many years ago, that's what I wanted. Uh, I wanted a brother to get up here and tell me, here's, here's how it works. Here's the answers. But we should not expect that our teachers in the truth allow us to sit like we're watching TV. That someone is just going to give us visual images and sounds, and that that is going to be an acceptable means by which for us to come to an understanding of the prophetic word. We have a responsibility to recognize the importance of the message and to give the proper study and dedication. Also, we need to find an instructor who will take that time and effort to sit and talk about the word of God and the word of prophecy. Now, those lessons, of course, apply to all the servants of God and not just those still awaiting to be baptized. But there's also a lesson for those of us in the truth. We need to continually strive to grow and understand because we might someday fit that role as an instructor. And it may not be at a time where we are expecting it or wanting it, but it may be a time when someone comes and asks, can you help explain these things to me? And it's not that we should desire that role or glory in it, but that we should be willing to fill it and able to fill it if it, that opportunity so arises. The eunuch would not have been baptized and had a hope of the kingdom if Philip had not been a willing, prepared instructor, if he had not been prepared to discuss the prophetic word concerning Christ. Hence, those of us in the truth have added motivation to study, not just for our own personal benefit, but that we might be capable of helping to guide and direct a new generation to follow God and understand the words of prophecy. When a young unbaptized person comes to us, or we approach them, and they respond with questions, we need to be ready to discuss on all topics, including prophecy. We need to take time and to be willing to sit and travel with them until they come to the waters of baptism. In conclusion this evening, we all know that prophecy is important, but we need to continually remind ourselves that at its root, the study of prophecy is a reflection of our interests and the will of God being fulfilled with the earth. Its importance goes beyond having an academic understanding of the coming of Christ. It is a means to motivate ourselves 
to remain strangers and pilgrims, and to remain ready to share our faith like Noah. We do not need to be discouraged that the prophetic expectations of 15 to 20 years ago did not come to pass, but instead be strengthened and rejuvenated in our study of the prophetic word. That we understand, excuse me, that we ensure that it is not part of our daily readings that we skim through, but instead a part that we strive to understand. Also, prophecy provides a tool for the younger generation to have faith that the scripture is the inspired word, that these great and precious promises will come to pass, that God does have a plan of salvation for this world, and we hope that all those who hear the true gospel will follow that path that leads to everlasting life. Thank you.